Hey everybody, we're the Con Artists. I'm Dan. I'm Scott. And what will we be talking about today? Well, we're going to be doing uh, the Last Exile Fan the Silver Wing, which would be the second season of Last Exile, uh, coming out quite a bit after the uh, the first one did. Now, I'm not gonna. I'll be blunt right up front here. We did not like this show very much. So if uh, you're looking to hear about how much we loved it and how great it is, this is probably a good time to back away and run. Mm-hmm. Uh, that said, I think we will start at least with the stuff that we did like. So let me take it away there, Dan. Sure. I mean, as they say, if you can't say something nice, don't say anything at all. But uh, Oh, this will be a real one... short podcast, then let me tell you what. Oh, yeah. <laughs> all right, then. We will, we'll just start with what is good and stop being nice after about 10 minutes or so. Well, there we go. The costuming is one of the things that this series has always done well. The first, uh, the first season had beautiful costuming, uh, good character designs, and for the most part, I, fr- I really think that Fam the Silver Wing follows up on that. The costumes have volume, they've got weight, even the uh, kind of skin-tight suits that the guilders wear still feel like they're actually something being worn by a character rather than painted on for the most part. Uh, the military uniforms fit the aesthetic, very kind of Napoleonic through, say, uh, World War One, World War Two era. Everything is really well designed, and every nation has its own unique fashion, so you can often easily tell where someone comes from just by what they're wearing. Obviously, with most of the military uniforms, that's kind of their purpose, but uh, beyond that, there's other good things as well. Scott, what were some of the things that you liked? You know, the the villain, Luskinia, in the show... Uh... His his plan was kind of dumb, but honestly, I kind of like that he he believed in his cause and wasn't just a big evil guy who wanted to blow everybody up. That's like true. he did, he did have an objective and he stuck to it, and he had some you know moral gray area. It wasn't very well done, but it was there, and I kind of appreciate that in a villain. So hmm. it's an got interesting that at attempt. Least. Yeah, yeah, it's an interesting attempt. Not great. Uh, other things actually, uh, there were a few. Remarkably decent characters. The whole cast is is not all that great, but there were a couple that we really liked. Uh, specifically, Deanne from uh, Glacius and Jize, uh, Fam's friend, one of the principal uh, protagonists. Yeah, Jize like, was Jize yeah. was pretty good. Like she had this kind of this neat ability where she could sort of look at a ship and then try to figure out what all the pieces did. It's like, oh, this looks like it's an antenna. This looks like it's used for hearing stuff. This might be where the guns are kept. It seemed plausible. It was very useful the couple of times it got pulled out. It was kind of neat, really. So I ended up liking her. She didn't get too much, very much screen time, as it turned out, or much development either, but it was kind of neat. Yeah, Deanne was much the same way. She was introduced late, so I can understand why she didn't get a lot of time, but she's just, she's a bit more nuanced. She's, uh, you know, she's a fighter pilot. Her nation gets absolutely wrecked, and well, she's very conflicted about that, as one might expect, but she doesn't, you know, really go all the way one way towards, like, uh, jingoism and, you know, just being, I hate everyone who isn't from my country, or, you know, being totally nice to everyone all at once. So there's a yeah, bit of back and forth is, there. Yeah, uh, is an intensely, like, uh, isolationist state, so That's most the... people from our country are much are more like that, which is why this is such a big deal for her. Mm-hmm. And beyond that, uh, I think that a lot of the mechanical designs were still quite good. The first series also, very good uh, mechanical designs. Not a huge fan of the use of CGI, but for the kinds of stuff that uh, they were trying to pull, all these air battles, it does make sense. Uh, The Federation ships, they're appropriately solid and mean-looking. They look like some kind of big kind of knife with uh, gears on the side. It's just generally uh, looking very nasty. And uh, Glacius had these really cool rocket fighters that, like, shot up really fast to intercept enemy ships because they don't have, like, ships at the line. They don't have warships. They just have these high-speed fighters that shot up on boosters. Yeah, and, I guess they use the boosters to get above the altitude limit of most of the regular warships, and then they just kind of dive at them and use a lot of powerful weaponry. So they're, they're pretty cool. Those are pretty and cool. And apparently also use a lot of computer technology. Sort of unclear, but still cool again. Yeah, more advanced, but more limited in a way. Uh, and then there's the Silvius, which doesn't really get as much play as you'd think, considering how much of the time of the first season was spent on the Silvana, which is, I assume, the predecessor. Uh, the Silvius, it's a nice enough design. It looks kind of neat. It can do some pretty ridiculous things and tank damage <laughs> that it has no right surviving, but we'll get into that later. Um, and then uh, what else, I guess? Uh, 
There uh, there's the uh, there's the areas, I guess. Like there's there's various places that, that everyone visits. Uh, Turan, where the show starts. Kartoffel, which is like a pirate city on these large rock spires that are above the altitude limit. Yeah, it's Glock up in case, some kind of a mentioned. it's up in some kind of a big crater, so you can't actually see it from the outside. That was pretty cool. Yeah, which makes sense for sky pirates. And all these places had they looked interesting, they looked different from each other, which was mm. nice. Even Addis, which is like the sort of the, the villains or the bad guys for most of it. Uh, had a lot of their own kind of architectural and cultural feel going. So someone spent a lot of time making all these places feel distinct, even if the show itself didn't really explore them as much as it would have, uh, as it probably should have, honestly. Yeah, it really did not dwell on the, uh, it didn't dwell on the people very much, and I think that was the problem. The architecture, the look of the place was, as you said, really cool. Uh, Addis has this big kind of, like, if you ever, if anyone knows anything about Warhammer 40k, uh, it looks like a hive city. It looks like this giant, like, spire thing of industry and whatnot. But uh, there's clearly people living in there, and they have, you know, gardens and other neat things. So it it does feel still like a livable place. And there yeah. are some other really gorgeous locations, like the uh, the Boreas Fortress has this kind of bizarre Art Deco, unlikely uh, but really neat looking <laughs> architecture. Or, Certainly uh, unlikely. It feels kind of like uh, like the palace from Scrap Princess, like that big conch shell looking thing almost, but even more yeah. airy and open, sort of. Uh, actually, Metropolis, the anime Metropolis, has a lot of similar kinds of designs where it's like, I don't know if this would really work, but it darn it if it doesn't look cool. Yeah, so Quiffer's got the background design going on. Good work, buddy. Mm. Like, nice work. Hmm. And that actually might... Just about cover all the stuff that we liked. For the most part, yeah. There's not a lot else I can think of. So I guess, uh, well, time to uh, time to start picking this thing apart and explain why such a promising show turned out to be just so bad. I mean, let's get into the meat of like let's get into the mechanical parts, and I don't just mean mechanical design. I mean the actual mechanics of the show. Where did yeah. this start to go wrong? I would say, like, one of the first places the show makes a misstep is how enormously huge the cast is. I mean, this is a full—actually, it isn't a full. It's a 23-episode show, which sort of indicates there might have been funding problems and they ran a little short. But even so, the cast is massive. There are tons and tons of people in this in the show, and— Honestly, I can only remember, like, maybe half of their names, and they're, they're supposed to all be important. Like, Addis has, like, the main bad guy, and... Like, his four generals, his four, and... The four generals, yeah, four generals for all of his fleets, and the leader, uh, Sarah, and then she, like, her mother's in backstory, and then there's these other guild guys going on. Turan has, like, several different people in it. Uh, Anatore and its whole group has several guys. The Sylvanas has a whole cast of characters. And the Sky Pirates add, like six or seven more it's just it's ridiculous yeah several of whom make so little impact that it doesn't feel like they should even have been included but they're there anyway and it's like they keep popping up like hey remember these guys no not really yeah like we, we, they keep trying to get a little bit of screen time to sort of develop them we'll get into this later a little bit but they just they don't have the time they need to develop this many characters oh you know what i thought about from a glacius there's like four more characters from glacius too yeah, and besides so, besides Dion and maybe her co-pilot, really none of them amount to much of anything. Yeah. Um, oh, and Elvis and Dio, who oh, are yeah. also back from the first show. So, and, like, them, they're around, too. Oh, yeah, and we will absolutely get into them later. Uh, another thing that was a huge problem for me, and this comes up in a bunch of anime. It's kind of a pet peeve of mine, um, and I know that you, Scott, also have some issues with this as yeah. well. And it's the sense of place and distance where everything is relative to anything else. And this is especially bad in shows where you have, I guess, airships or any form of transportation that can rapidly cover a large amount of distance without actually seeing the journey. And this show completely seems to fumble it. Like, it's it's all taking place around this thing called the Grand Lake, this massive body of water. And when you see it initially, you see water from horizon to horizon. This thing is massive. It may as well be an ocean. But at the same time, people are getting from place to place in what feels like a matter of hours. And yeah, they're in airships and whatnot, but there's absolutely no sense that these things are far apart from each other, yet... Everyone acts like getting a fleet from one side to the other is a major undertaking. Like this huge logistical challenge. And I guess what makes it worse is that they do have, like, often they'll show a map of, you know, the area of interest of the show. You know, pretty big, the whole Grand Lake or whatever you want to call it, the ocean is there. 
mm-hmm. and all the nations are on it. And like people will point and be like, oh, we're going here, we're going to conquer this. Like Addis is on this sort of long-term campaign to conquer all of the nations that are around the Grand Lake. And it's taken them decades, apparently, to do most of this. So you get the sense that it's a really, really big area. But then later in the show, it takes people like less than a day to cross the whole distance. Mm-hmm. It it never seems consistent, I guess. And it's and since the, it's a lot of this military logistics, like big fleets trying to maneuver at each other, that's it's important stuff for a show like that. And they just kind of drop the ball. Yeah. Um, and one of the worst offenders in this is Anatore, which is a nation from the original series that transplanted to this new world. We're going to get into some of this confusion later, but uh, trust me, the show doesn't explain it very well, so... Eh. We're trying and our best here. We're doing our best with the information on hand. But uh, Anatore is supposed to be, like, the last best hope for one of the nation's Turan that has been recently conquered. They want to ally with Anatore so that they can, you know, build up a fleet, take the fight back to the Addis Federation, and reclaim their homeland and other homelands that have been uh, conquered by them. But where Anatori is, or what they're doing most of the time, is left completely in the dark. Yeah, like we see the, the Silvius, which is like sort of like a, like a spy, scout, all-purpose ship of theirs. Mm-hmm. But we don't see almost anything else of them or their people or their military for the vast majority of the show. We're talking 22 out of 23 episodes here. They're not even in the, in the show. I'm 90% yet, certain we never see a single civilian or a city, town, oh no, we whatever. We don't visit them or anything. But, I mean, Addis keeps talking about them like they're a huge threat, and it's just, it, I don't know. Mm. And on that uh, point, Dio and Alvis are now basically part of Anatore, so... There's a point where they escape from the main plot, so to speak, supposedly to go off and do important things that have to do with the Exiles, these big uh, starships that have carried all of these. Originally were used to carry people off of this planet away to other worlds when a big catastrophe happened, and now that that catastrophe is no longer a thing, they've come back, much to the chagrin of the people who had managed to survive the Cataclysm, which is kind of the root of this whole conflict, but I'm getting off track. Dio and Alvis sort of, you know, they go away, presumably to do important things, but where they go is completely vague. They're in some kind of wheat field, which was a big piece of symbolism, like in the original one, which was maybe on the exile, maybe not. It's made even less clear in this show. And you'd say, oh, did they go back to their exile? Well, then they come under attack by, like, Addis guild types who are somehow also in the wheat field fighting them. Yeah. And it's just, and there's an Inatory warship there just kind of hanging out. I don't know. It's, it's like some other place that doesn't necessarily ever, it's never explained. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they're, they're there for like a good portion of the show. And you're like, where are those guys? Yeah. There's just, there's no, there, despite the use of maps and whatnot, which I'd normally really appreciate, there's just no sense of where everything really is connected to one another, I guess. Yeah. There's no there's no connective tissue in the journey. Yeah, so let's see. What else would be a problem? Uh, I guess, you know, moving on from sense of distance, there's also the kind of like the sense of time. Uh, throughout the show, I mean, both Dan and I had seen Last Exile originally, the first mm-hmm. show, the first season. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's Last Exile 2. We see Dio and Elvis, and Dio doesn't seem to have aged. We're not really sure if the guild guys age at all. At least not very but, much. I mean, you know, they're back, so we're, it's it's after the events of Last Exile. Alvis looks to be maybe, I don't know, five or ten years older or something. So we're, for a lot of the show, we're trying to figure out how long it's been since the first season, I guess. Mm-hmm. And, and it's revealed eventually, we kind of managed to piece it together between this and Wikipedia, that it was four years, and that was it. But that's only revealed a really long ways in because uh, we don't see Alvis, for example, for a while, and Dio, Lord only knows what happened to him at the end. But the implication here is, remember what I said, that the exiles have been returning to this world. Yeah, it's like the, the ship from the first season is actually only one of maybe six of these six or seven, yeah. ships. Yeah, they might be the seventh, I'm not really sure, but there's yeah, there's quite a few of those out there. Mm-hmm. And they've, and it seems like it's implied that they've been returning for decades, maybe even centuries, and have built up their own, like their own cultures, often displacing the people that were already there. The Tyrannians, in fact, which one of the major characters, uh, Princess Melia, is part of. She's 
the ruler of their uh, – they're basically their nation in exile. And they're apparently immigrants, but they have a fully developed society, and no one seems to remember their connection to the exiles. I mean, they know they exist, but nobody seems to remember that they came back, or nobody acknowledges it, except for the villains. So how long – like, this would have had to have been at least several decades for them to come in, push everyone out, and set up their own kingdom where everyone seems to be doing fine, or even longer than that. So this is all stuff that we had to piece together at the end, and I'm a big fan of, you know, show, don't tell, but you're neither showing nor telling us anything in this case, show. Right, like take Anatori, for example, right? They're a huge – they're, you know, as I've mentioned, Addis seems to think they're a huge military presence, but – They've only been back for four years on this planet. Yeah, and yet they've and, somehow managed to rebuild and improve their fleet, which had more or less been absolutely devastated in the events and final battles of the first season. Yet they're this military juggernaut who's only just arrived on the planet, and everyone's afraid of them despite them absolutely doing nothing for 90% of the show. Yeah, it's, I don't know, just, just strange. See, like, you get the sense that Things things happen in the plot, and they're they're not explained in any way. Nor did you see any of them coming, mm. not in a good way. Like these aren't plot twists. These are just a fleet shows up out of nowhere, and everyone expe- like acts like it's normal. It's like, well, all right, I guess. Yeah. All right. So what else? Uh, you know what? The Vaughn ships. Oh yeah. Vaughn ships were like they're like small fighter craft, essentially, like <laughs> maybe one or two seaters that played a huge role in the first season. It was almost like an allegory for World War II, where the rise of the carrier and fighter-based aircraft overwhelmed the older battleships. Cole kind of feel like that. So they were very central to military strategy, I guess, and the show in general. And now, in Last Exile fam here, they just they don't do anything. They're just, I don't know, they're like transport craft, maybe. Well, the Sky Pirates use them to capture bigger ships and occasionally disable them, but they seem to be the only ones. Like... Other than Anatore, which makes sense because they're the ones who pioneered these tactics, nobody seems to use them for anything other than sc- than scouting. Glacius uses their rocket fighters, but that's only because they don't have the other ships. It just it seems odd that no one is using them in a larger capacity, and even when they do, most of them aren't even armed. Most yeah, of them, like, like you said, they're tra- they're transports. They're you know they don't even scout with them, which is the real bizarre thing because there will be. You remember how you said a fleet just appears. Well, that happens from our point of view, but it also happens from the character's point of view, as if they don't have people scouting around, ranging about, trying to spot these incredibly large, obvious fleets that you can see, you know, the only reason you can't see them is due to the curvature of the planet. So there's just, there's a, there's a very, there's a big lack of use yeah, like Addis, for instance, the the bad guys, they exclusively and only use large ships of the line. Mm-hmm. Not once have I did I ever launch a single Vaughn ship for any reason. Other than as like a, and these weren't even really Vaughn ships; these were bigger transports. Those are the only things they've used. Yeah, they and, got a couple fast transports, but they don't use them. There's no, they don't use them for anything. And like even when the enemy you know is fighting them and they have Vaughn ships, they're just like, eh, who cares? We have bigger ships, mm-hmm. and the show just kind of rolls with it. Like they. Fan ships are never effective against larger ships, really, which is weird because that was the whole theme of the first show. Yeah. And then there's the design of the actual airships. I mentioned that aesthetically, many of them look pretty good. Like, again, I think of all of them, the Addis Federations are probably the best suited for what they're doing. They have these sort of weird, almost paddle-like assemblies on the side, supposedly, you know, supposed to, you know, basically be pushing the air, kind of like an old-fashioned paddle wheel. Again, I don't think the mechanics of it are actually sound, but who knows? It doesn't matter. They it look they, it looks menacing. Which it is looks what big and mean, exactly. Yeah. Um, but the Addis Federation ships, we find out eventually, have these big exposed pipes on the top of them. That at one point, a van ship simply flies up to it. Someone pulls out what looks like a grenade launcher and blows one of those things, bringing the entire ship crashing down because it spills out all of its fuel. Yeah, we're, we're talking like this isn't like you know a small uh, war, like warship either. This is the flagship of one of Addis's four major fleets, and, and they this, bring it down with a single bullet. And this is again 
I'm I'm not joking. This is right on the top, right on the most exposed area of this ship. It's not like it's inside or in a place that only a van ship could get to, or only if you really, really knew where to aim could you fire through the thermal exhaust port or whatever. No, these are these big coils hanging out in the middle. You'd think they'd at least put that behind some kind of a plate. That's kind of like having your ship's engines on the outside with no armor exposed to the elements and enemy fire. Yet it is never brought up again that this is a glaring weak point. Yeah, like, not only do the other major warships not shoot at this area of, you know, of the Atta ship, no Vaughn ships ever shoot it again. It's like a one-time thing just because they wanted to... I think they wanted to have Fom and company do something to help. Because mm-hmm. they're, they're pacifists. They never arm their ships. and They never shoot at anybody. That's, like, a theme throughout the show. They still wanted to have them help somehow, so they had, like, this one-time weakness they exploited. I don't know. It's very strange. Yeah, it's just, you can't, I cannot imagine anyone designing that thing and thinking, well, this looks like it's going to be perfectly fine and will never be a problem again. (laughs) Uh, All right, so that's probably enough about the mechanical problems, as we'll call them, like the, you know, the reasons why the show doesn't work on sort of like a meat and potatoes level. So let's get into the really good stuff now, the plot, Mm -hmm. the events that happen during the show and why they don't make any sense. It starts out pretty decently or at least you know passively it's okay enough. when it starts yeah there's uh just a just a quick overview there's uh there's an attempt to make peace between the Tyrannian uh kingdom and the Addis Federation the Addis have been conquering everyone so the Tyrannians are just like all right we don't want to fight you just like you know look us over we'll agree to we'll agree to terms and nobody has to die well Addis right. apparently isn't having any of that they come in uh, kidnap one of the princes. One of the princesses think they've killed the other. The other one, and she's only saved by the intervention of a bunch of sky pirates, including the title character Fam and her friend Jize and all of these other ones. And from there, it's kind of this bizarre adventure as they try to get Anatore to help them. And then when they finally get a bunch of forces together, then they you know take the fight to uh, Addis. But while that might seem serviceable, there's a lot of fluff in between all of it, and it becomes pretty evident early on that things aren't going to go as smoothly as they did in the initial series. And I think the part where all of our hopes for the series sort of started to, uh, if not die, started to look Falter. a little yeah, started to look a little sickly, was an early episode where the Princess of Turan, Milia dresses up in a maid outfit, and lays claim to a section of the ship as basically her new territory. The territory for her government in exile. Like, it's... So first of all, this is like, you know, a full... Not full, but like French maid-style outfit. Like, this isn't this isn't like Earth, and these are displaced Earth colonists. This is supposed to be some kind of alternate world. Actually, it is supposed to be Earth. Is it, is it really? I, apparently. Uh, but again, this is never made evident in the oh, show. Whatever. I mean, it's, it's far enough removed from Earth. I don't think it's really supposed to be like it. It seems but anyway, odd. She's, she, she says, like, oh, I've heard this is how you can manipulate people is by dressing up like this. And it is so obviously, like, pandering to the audience. And for what reason, we're not sure. Usually when you pander to the audience, it's because you have a character that you want to see dressed up differently or do something funny. We've known her for maybe two episodes at this point. We barely even know who she is. And she suddenly is dressing up in a maid outfit, which really just, I don't know. And it's not like this girl is in any way sexy, I guess. She's not out, she's not outgoing. She's not flirtatious. She's not, she is no, she has none of the qualities that would make you think that this would be a plan she would ever have come up with. And the idea that she would be dumb enough to think that this was actually a legitimate strategy for convincing people to to help you shows that she is in no way qualified to be the leader of a country. Well, yeah, it's just it, it just feels like they put it in there again for for people watching and not for any other reason. And it's it's just weird in a show where we've come to expect more from the first season of Last Exile, and that's where we kind of figured things were starting to go wrong. Yeah. And Let's see, what else? It gets even there? it gets worse. Like that's that's sort of a throwaway gag, and you'd almost forgive it if it were just the only thing, just kind of a wait, what was that all about? Oh, whatever, never mind. But the problems don't stop there. We get the guild, for example. The guild was the big bad of the first season. Uh it was this group of highly advanced technological dudes who pr- practiced some sort of either weird genetic uh, purity, sort of cultish-like thing, where they understand tech way better than everyone else, but everything's highly ritualized. 
and they're very, very dangerous. They're even their uh, like basic dudes have better weaponry and can run around really, can run really fast, jump really fast, do a lot of really neat things. And as such, they tend to rely on melee uh, a lot more than most people. But because they're so quick, it's not like guys with guns can really stand up to them. But now they are like lightsaber wielding, time shifting ninja vampires or something. And no one but Dio, another member of the guild, can even so much as injure them. Yeah, they are. I don't know the 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 power increase in these guild members. Who I should note, none of, almost none of these guild guys are named characters. They never talk. They're not. They're just like they're, I don't know mooks, but like super mooks. They're so a, much more they're powerful a death than squad, everyone yeah. else. They're 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 desk, but they're so much more powerful than everyone else in the show that you just like what what happened like to these guys. Like for for instance, in two different instances, they invade the Silvius, and for their like all they do is kill people on board. No one is is able to stop them. It's not like you know in, in the first season where a couple of guys were able to hold them off, or like the leader of the ship was a combat genius in his own right. Nobody can even touch these guys. Mm. And in another example of how the plot kind of goes haywire, it's never clear in either of these two instances how the ship survived these assaults. Like the ship kind of flies away, full of guild dudes killing everybody. And then comes back several episodes later with everything being fine. And, and none of the named no char- explanation. None of the named characters have even so much as been wounded. And because these ships now- nowadays apparently have such small crews that we get to see all of them at any given time, like, the idea that these guys left no, uh, left no people dead and were fought off co- conflicts completely with everything that's been established about the guild. It's it's just like at one point they actually wipe out the entire bridge like the bridge is empty and they've killed everyone on it and then later the ship's fine again it's just I don't know they're they're too powerful and they're not even, I think they just painted themselves into a corner and said all right well that didn't happen pretty much. not everyone was dead it's 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 magic yeah. and there's no there's no explanation of where the guild guys really came from or where they were trained they don't have any personalities they don't pilot ships with maybe some exceptions in the very end, but that's maybe, still I, very vague. I think it might have been AI-controlled. It's kind of unclear. Like, yeah. Luskinia, the leader of, of Addis, the main villain of the show, is a guild guy, but there's no indication that he's training other guild guys, like that he's, these mook types. They sort of just he, are around. They exist, and they hurt people, and that's it. Uh, very strange. And, mm. let's see. Oh, yeah. Fam herself. Fam herself, moving away from the side characters, Fam herself is probably the weakest link in this entire show. She is just, she is abrasive, she is loud, she is obnoxious, and there is no good reason why she should be trusted with any of the things she has. Yet, we're focusing on her like she's supposed to be some sort of endearing, idealist character. Yeah, she's... Uh, I guess we could talk about... We'll, we'll, we'll break a because we're going to talk characters later, but I guess we should break off to talk about her for a little bit. Like Dan said, she's kind of an idealist. Uh, her whole objective in the show is to have a grand race, which was like... There was a time once when peace was kind of on the horizon for most of the nations, and they had got together and had a big NASCAR race in the sky, essentially. And she got to see the first one when she was young, and she just really wants to have that happen again. So that's almost literally her entire justification for everything she does in the show, along with, uh, I'll help anyone who comes along is in need of aid. So she ends up helping Milia for the whole show, essentially. Mm-hmm. But other than those two things, she doesn't really have, I don't know, I guess a personality of her own. And there's and she has really, other than being a decent pilot, she's not intelligent in just about any other field. She doesn't have any other experience or knowledge. Yet, constantly, she keeps getting invited to high-level negotiations between uh, several nations. And you can sort of understand that, you know, she is a friend of one of the princesses, so it makes sense that she'd at least be kept informed. But every single time she opens her mouth, something stupid comes out, and the entire negotiation comes to a screeching halt. Right, we're talking, like, people talking about, you know, fairly important things, like reparations, or the terms of peace, or what's going to happen with the, the, the fleets and how can we negotiate a ceasefire. And then Fam will stand up in the middle and be like, I think everyone should be friends with each other. And like the whole room just stares at her. Like who let her in here? Mm-hmm. Like the adults are talking. What are you doing? And I know this, this happens most egregiously towards, I'd say the last 
third of the show, but it does happen multiple times before and I think once afterwards, if I recall correctly. Either way, just uh, poor decision-making all around on that one. Right, it's um, like this uh, uninformed idealism, sort of, and the real problem is that she never really gets over it. Like, that's kind of her whole her whole deal. Mm. So, but the, the show keeps, you know, since she's the main character, it kind of lets her get away with it, but the situations are so unrealistic that it's contrived, hard to Contrived, yeah. Yeah, it's contrived, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah, and backing away from characters, because like Scott said, we'll get back to those uh, in more detail later. Um, other issues with the cast in general... No one ever dies. And by that, of course, we mean that no named character ever dies. The body count throughout the show is pretty staggering when you uh, when you think about it with the number of fleets and cities that get absolutely wrecked. But Yeah, large segments of civilian populations are killed. These battles are like dozens and dozens of ships shooting at each other. And when they go down, like there's no escape pods. Everyone in them pretty much dies. Yet, so the, yet somehow, every character that has been given a name, with the exception of like a, a few, a few like, of the major villains, none of them die. Yeah, like I think the body count is like, uh, like, like three of the villains and one of the quote-unquote good guys. Like sort of the leader of the rebellion against Addis, but... She's got her own thing. She's kind of like a gray area sort of character. Those are the oh, only yeah. deaths in the show. I mean, it's not even clear if the villain himself dies. He kind of like walks off while rocks are falling, and it's unclear if he gets hit by any of them or whatever. I think you know, we can, he's a gilder, probably not. I can safe, I think we can safely assume he's dead, but even so, uh, it's it's left maybe. unnecessarily vague. And like, how ridiculous is this? Like, let's. I guess I'll take it piece by piece. So like Glacius, the the rocket fighter guys. Uh, at some point, they well, pretty much their whole fleet goes and attacks one of Addis's fleets, and Addis's fleet has a secret anti-vonship weapon. It kills like almost all of them. Mm-hmm. There's so like maybe a dozen dead. pilots left at the end, right? And but we don't lose any named characters, of course. Then there's Addis. Other than the guys we've mentioned, like they have these fleets, and uh, like a little bit of the plot is like Addis is going out and conquering people, but also killing a whole lot of them because it's their whole thing is they're worried that all these returning exile ships. All their people are going to eat up all the resources, and there won't be enough for everyone. So they're kind of preemptively genociding everybody else. And none of these genocide fleet commanders ever gets killed. There's there's one guy who has like two lines in the whole show, and he lives through the whole thing too. Mm-hmm. Oh, the, o- the oldest guy the, does. The oldest guy does die in the end, completely unnecessarily, when he goes down with a ship that he was fully capable of evacuating from. Yeah, one of the few times he can get out of a ship and get away, he decides not to. Yeah. Uh, what else? Like, so then there's the the, Sil- the Sylvius characters that we talked about, how those guild guys keep invading and killing everybody. Well, none of the named characters there die. Mm-hmm. There's the Sky Pirate Town, which at some point Addis comes along with these huge long-range guns and just blows this town to pieces. Yeah. And Shit. nobody dies. I mean, even people who were only on screen once before, like, you know, the old lady or this person that made them cake or whatever... All of them are still alive. Not somehow. even injured. There's not a single named character on the protagonist's side with, I think, one and we'll call one of them a half an exception that actually is significantly injured or dead as a result of what uh, as a result of what occurs. So the sense of any sort of threat to anybody is completely lost. It was, it was just strange in a show where like tons and tons of ships are going down all the time. Mm. I don't know, very strange. Um, strangest of all, possibly, was Sorush. Who oh, was, the leader uh, of the like high-speed assault fleet, right? One of yeah, uh, one this, of the Addis this... fleets, and he was one of the he's one of the people who stayed loyal to um, to the premier to Luskinia, the crazy genocidal guy who stayed loyal to him when there was a big split and Addis started turning against Luskinia. He stuck with him out of I don't know loyalty. Question mark. It's, it's actually, I think it was pragmatism was his thing, because he's, he's, he's a weird character. He's like this brash sort of ladies' man, but also he'll just kind of do whatever it takes to get it done. He has no I, I, ideals, I guess. Yeah. And he's, he thinks that the, the premier's plan is going to be the most pragmatic way to solve the problem, mm-hmm. so he sticks with him. Uh, whereas one of his friends is like totally idealistic and no longer sort of like goes with him. So he basically, like the, the idealistic guy kind of turns on him and shoots him in the back. Mm-hmm. And so he and his his fleet sort of have this one last ridiculous charge directly into a rock face where they all blow up and die uh, in, in a major battle. Yeah, this ship just plows straight into a cliff, explodes, everything is gone. And then, and then the ships fall into like a chasm, and all ships that ever fell in there have died. So it's 
You're like, all right, that guy's toast, and his death was at least... ...claims that she's still in charge of Turan and that all the ships are going to follow her. Somehow, unexplained to anyone in the audience, they have been staffing these ships with Turanian soldiers that we have never met nor seen after Turan was flattened by a, by a falling exile. Right, like, she's been living on board the Silvius... Like, this, this, that thing with the maid outfit where she took quote-unquote territory is basically she has a cafeteria table in the mess. That is the extent of the, of the boat. That is the extent of Turan as it exists. Uh, yeah, like, they, they actually know. put a little, they put a little tape barrier around it. Like, if, you know, it, it's ridiculous. So she's, she's trying to run the government from there, I guess. Mm-hmm. And off screen, I guess, they've been recruiting Turanian soldiers, bringing them on, on board, putting them on all these captured ships, crewing them finding enough food and, like, fuel and what? Like, all of a sudden, all these ships have people on them, like, oh, but only when the princess shows up to demand them to come back. And the really crazy thing is that they change size and follow Milia's sister just because she's the eldest and she says so. Like, she's on the side of the people who pretty much genocided your entire country. Even if all of your civilians weren't killed, because many of them were able to evacuate, they still pretty much destroyed your entire culture, murdered your king, and all of it on the false pretense of wanting to uh, join you in peace. Yeah, they had this section. There was a whole, like, uh, like negotiations at the Grand Lake are sacred, and, like, no one will interrupt them. And Addis just kind of showed up and bombed everybody, like, in the middle of the peace conference. Right. A, thing, a topic which never comes up again, by the way. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, here we are with all of these guys now turning on the girl who has somehow inexplicably managed to gather them all together and raise their hopes of returning to their country. They turn on her to follow the possibly brainwashed, definitely unscrupulous uh, former princess who claims to be in charge and is, follow- and is following a crazy genocidal dude. <laughs> Yeah, they, they kind of play it off like the soldiers are happy that there isn't going to be war and like they're sort of sick of it. But again, we just met these guys about 10 seconds ago, so it was hard to tell their morale before then. Yeah. Now, I understand that this twist is like, sure, it, it broke up what I was expecting to happen, and that can sometimes be good. But what it really did was render useless Fam Gize and Millie's efforts for the first half of the show, since what they've been doing is gathering these ships... And also, Millie doesn't really get a chance to turn into the leader I was describing on screen in any way you can follow. Mm. The show still has her magically know how to lead people by the end, but there's no idea, there's no reason why she should be able to. All she does for the rest of the show, after this, the point when the ships change sides, is spend the rest of it in a three-seater Vaughn ship with Fam, who is not exactly a font of leadership knowledge. Yeah. It's, so, I don't know. Uh, a badly done twist. A very poor move, I think. I think you're right. Um, and this is sort of where the show really starts to plummet. Like, up until now, it had been sort of a roller coaster of, like, some episodes were pretty cool. I'll admit that some of the whole, uh, schemes that they came up with to capture some of the, uh, ships were actually fairly interesting, or at least made for good watching. Uh, but then we get to the Battle of Boreas Fortress, which is a really important sort of uh, staging zone where you can rearm and refuel your ship. So obviously it's going to be very important to capture it and deny it to the Addis Federation uh, to stop Luskinia's whole, you know, rampage across the continent. Yeah, so it's another thing, like, these. They have now have, like, these huge fleets have sort of assembled. They're just shooting at each other a whole lot, but there's... There's really no visible impact. They just have characters kind of tell us what's going on. Mm-hmm. And then in the middle of one of these big battles, the Sylvia shows out of nowhere, bullets spewing. It looks like a bullet hell. It just spins around with bullets firing out of four different directions. It's kind of ridiculous, honestly. Screens, ships start blowing up, and the screen kind of like fades to white. There's this implication that the battle is over, and the Sylvius has turned the tide. When we come back from the fade to white, the Sylvius characters are in Boyer's Fortress talking to people on foot. But when we cut back outside, the flea we just blew up is still sitting there, unscathed, but not attacking. It's like, how did the Sylvius get from the middle of that enemy fleet back to the fortress? Why did the battle stop? Why is the two sides unchanged? It's almost like they hit a reset button. Mm -hmm. It made so little sense that before this podcast, I actually went back and watched the scene again to make sure I wasn't missing something. And it still didn't make any sense. Oh, God. And then there's the whole peace treaty thing where the uh, the leader, the child leader, Sarah, of uh, the Addis Federation is trying to make peace with everyone, where Fam does her whole stand-up and say, why can't everyone be friends? Oh, that entire sequence was a mess. And then later on, 
uh, after that and the villain's evil plan uh, kind of kicking into high gear. Yeah, actually, we should probably take an aside to talk about his evil plan for a minute. Because oh, yeah. as I mentioned, it was it was sort of disjointed. Like, the beginning, like I said, it seemed like, all right, we're going to conquer the world and kill enough people to make sure there's enough resources for everyone, while at the same time taking revenge on all these people coming back from the exiles that have kicked us all out. Okay. But then later, he kind of changes his plan. He goes deep into the north and gets this super exile. They actually call it the Grand Exile. And suddenly he has a you know a classic evil villain laugh, like he's just going to use this thing to kill everybody. Yeah, standing on a standing on a mountaintop, clawed hands held out to the side, ya ha 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 ha, whole thing. Like utterly ridiculous. But then later he's kind of back to normal and talking with uh, Milia, and he's like, "Oh yeah, like the the reason I'm doing this is because maybe in a they only have guns, but if they are shot at, they have these long extendy." whip arms sort of that can they're so large they're like bigger than a whole warship so they can mm-hmm. pretty much wreck anything they're they're very and powerful so when the final battle happens and Luskinia is riding around in the big uh grand exile or whatever yeah shooting things exile. with his giant super gun uh he just keeps firing it at people but he then decides to fire it at Turan a nation that he has already destroyed and has recolonized with his own people yeah, now, say what you will about his plan, you know, his, his evil and how he keeps changing up to this point. But it happened... They almost they never, never use it. it. Like, I think oh, they use... They just, I think it's three times in it. the entirety of it. And the final time is on the Exile, a ship that she has absolutely no reason to know how it works, but she's able to plot a course by just eyeballing alone. Uh. Yeah, I just... I wish we'd gotten more on her, because she's supposed to be Fam's best friend, and they have... There's, like, a lot of... Uh, I want to call it bonding, since they're already comradeship. Kind of I guess there's a lot of yeah. like time with the, yeah comradeship between the two of them at the beginning that just doesn't, doesn't go anywhere. They just kind of don't have. Her there's so little interpersonal that. conflict between them that Jizay just kind of becomes a wallflower and hangs around the whole time while Fam puts mm. her foot in her mouth. <laughs> That's a good way of putting it. Let's see who else was there. Oh yeah, Orang and Sorosh. We were talking about Sorosh a little bit, the brash guy, but. He and this other guy, Orang, the guy who eventually turns in them, they they have these philosophical differences between them that they talk about quite a bit. Now, it's fairly well done in the beginning of the show, uh, up until there's a point when they all roll over Glacius and kind of blow them up, you know, blow the country up. And after that, it seems like they just kind of don't know what to do with the two of them. Most of the time, it's just the two of them shouting platitudes at each other from the bridge of their respective ships as if the other person can hear them. They as far as we can tell, there's person. no radio. All communication so is handled either through, like, a direct cable line or, like, signal flares and uh, Morse code. So the idea that these guys can in right, any so way we... understand what the other person is saying is ludicrous in the extreme. So, like, it'll just be like you cut to this one guy and he shouts, like, uh, you know, well, you know, here's one of my ideals. And you cut to the other guy and he'll be like, here's this other ideal. And they just keep going back and forth and you're like, I uh, don't care about these people. Like they're 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 yeah. trite. There's the other leaders of the five fleets who get a little bit of development, but we don't really care about any of them. There's Augusta Sarah, the princess or leader queen, whatever you want to call it, of Addis, who is a you know she's a child who's put into this position of leadership. So you know obviously it's a struggle for her, but she doesn't. Again, she doesn't really develop. All she does is go from being a figurehead to crying at people, and then those people feeling sad enough for her that they kind of agree to whatever she says. Right, and, like, this works on several occasions, including stopping a major war, but it never takes... The war just like, keeps war, happening. You know, someone breaks the ceasefire within five minutes, mm-hmm. so it kind of breaks down. It seems like they were trying to build her up to do something, too, but in the end, she just kind of ended up getting used as a plot device. I don't know. They spend a lot... She gets a know, lot of screen such time, little too. development. Then there's also another character, uh, Teddy. She, he is, uh... He is this young boy oh who is, God. uh... Milia's sort of personal servant. And he's... He's always around. He's very formal. He's kind of clumsy. He's really... You know, he's really desperate to serve her, but he's really weepy and annoying. And he'd be like... He's like the classic, like, totally effeminate, uh... Like, male yeah. man-servant type guy. But, like, you know, yeah, a child. Yeah, so you can kind of ten. forgive him for not being very good at his job or anything, but... He, you expect like okay he's gonna he's gonna grow up or he's gonna be important if if nothing else he's gonna give moral support this was like 
this was my biggest complaint. Like it's uh, for a large part of the show, the Sylvius like goes off screen and goes elsewhere. Like Milia gets separated from them, but Teddy basically gets left behind on the uh, the Sylvius for I don't know ten or fifteen yeah. episodes or something. When they finally reunited Boreas Fortress, I was really expecting him to come off that ship <laughs> having become a man or like learn to do something useful, and he just. He's always just, oh my god, princess, I'm so glad to see you. Is and he like, supposed that's his to whole be comic right relief? There, I don't know, because none of it is funny. It's just cringeworthy. He's, he's not. Well, he's just uh, He's just there. Like, Teddy... Teddy so many hopes, hopes. and they were all dashed. And that's how bad it was, that we didn't care enough about the main cast, that we were pinning our hopes on this annoying little brat. Uh, then there's there's Vincent, a character mm. comes back from the uh, f- from the first show, who was pretty important, but not really an A-lister. And... Then he's just kind of flying around in the Urbanus, one of the named ships from the first series, just doing something. Again, this all ties into, like, what are they doing with Albus? Why is she important? Right. But, like, at one point he walks onto the uh, the Silvius and he's like, hey, it's me, Vincent. As, you know, as if all the people that have watched Last Exile are going to be super excited that he's back. And then he just leaves? More or I don't less, know. He doesn't yeah. do anything. It's almost like he's there for a cameo, but they try to make him out to be, mm-hmm. like, big and important, and he yep. never is. And then, uh, this all brings us, of course, we've discussed her in bits and pieces up until this point, but fam, fan, freaking fan. Yes, her name is yeah. fam, fan, her fan. So- her name sounds nothing like anyone else's. It sounds like something she just made up, because nobody else has a name like that. Uh, she's just a terrible character from start to finish. You want to know how she's introduced? Scott, how how do we first meet this girl? She's talking in her sleep while sleepwalking off of an airship mm-hmm. while it's in a flight. But everyone knows that this happens so often that they've tied her foot to something, so she's just dangling and, over the edge of the ship. And everyone says, this happens all the time, ha ha ha. Never she's comes up again. Idiot. By the way, the uh, thing that she's tied to is apparently like a string of bedsheets that's like 30 feet long. So if that thing is going to arrest your fall, I hope you're ready for your ankle or your leg or something to get popped out of its socket, girl. But no, perfectly fine. Just kind of da- just, just dangling there over yeah, the it's, abyss. it's weird that we introduced her. Yeah, oh, yeah. Still asleep, by the way. She doesn't wake up. And, like, we introduced that, like, that's, like, we introduced it, like, almost like it's going to be her, I don't know. Her, her quirk. Her, her thing that her character does that makes her fun. A quirk, exactly. But it yeah. never happens again. It's just, all right. Uh, sure. We we also uh, find out later that she's the granddaughter of the one member of the, okay, one of the two members of the uh, Addis Generals to die. The one who died completely unnecessarily. She's his granddaughter. Her backstory is set up in, like, this weird mystery. Like, they, her, the Sky Pirates found her when her mother and, we assume, her father crashed. And they were both dead, but she but she was alive as a baby, and they took her in. And there's never really, like, a big thing for her. She doesn't really want to know more about her family. So bringing this guy in and having him be her grandfather and her finding out at the end accomplishes absolutely nothing. It doesn't add a new wrinkle to anything. It doesn't... Uh, it doesn't make her character more interesting or cause her to grow or change or consider that, I don't know, maybe these people that we have been fighting uh, fighting against, you know, they're, they're people too and we should, you know, we should be nice to them. No, she just kind of always thinks that anyway. It, it was sort of weird. Like the one interaction that the Admiral and her had was they danced once mm-hmm. when there was like a peace talks type thing. And like he, he knew that she was his granddaughter, so he was kind of really excited to see her, but he didn't let on. And, I don't know, Fam ends up stepping on his feet because she's a terrible dancer, so of it's of, sort of a comedic moment. And when she learns that he's died at the end of the show, her reaction is to burst into tears because she was sorry she stepped on his feet so much. And, like, that was the end of the... the that was the payoff, I guess. It was like, yeah. okay. I mean, you might argue that her, you know, being abandoned as a child and then... Fa- or not abandoned, but, you know, orphaned as a child and then found and helped by these people who really had no reason to take care of her... Uh, might explain her personality of being, you know, being so energetic and all about helping others. And But it's just a bit of a jump. She's she's an orphan that gets taken in by a bunch of, by a bunch of, uh, by a bunch of criminals. And this is somehow translated into her absorbing the idea that everyone should be helping everyone else all the time. It, it's just a very weak motivation for a 
and while some characters, you know, the earnestness of wanting to be a good person and then having to contrast that with the compromises that need to be made with, you know, high-level negotiations between warring nations and the fact that war is not pretty. You cannot be friends with the people that are shooting at you right this moment. It's kind of difficult. It's There's none of that conflict. At one point, she just sort of explains that... that Oh, the world is so the world is so sad because none of the things that I thought were uh, the way things worked are real. But you know what? I'm just going to make it a world where that can happen. That's the extent of her uh, character growth is to become more pig-headed. Yeah, like she Yeah, like she like I said before, she wants to have this grand race happen and she even acknowledges that her own desire is ridiculous and she doesn't really know what it would take, but she never makes the leap and realizes that what she really wants is the conditions for a grand race to be possible, like world peace and, and happiness. She just keeps being like, I want a grand race, I want a grand race, I want a grand race. She never grows in a way that makes her, I don't know, Well, sort character. of, until the very last ten minutes of the final episode. Yeah, oh, where yeah. she's demanding that Luskinia take responsibility for all of the things he's done. By the way, the things he has done include genocide, you know, war crimes of various types, and, you know, unleashing a super weapon on people that had no idea if it even existed. And I'll admit that her her demand is reasonable and fairly well delivered. The sentiment is appropriate, but it doesn't fit her at all since she hasn't developed at all since day one and just kind of, you know, comes up with this off the cuff. Ah. <sighs> Yeah, it was it was like she had all of her character development she should have had throughout the show in two sentences. And then she went back to being... More or less, not that there was a lot of time to deal with things after that. And just as a side note, I yeah, did I a little bit of research. She's voiced by the same woman who played Yui in Kaon and Lisa from The Sacred Blacksmith. If you followed us at Genericon, you'll know my feelings on all of those. It's Now, that's not the character's yeah. fault, but I'm sensing a trend that this woman just voices characters that I am going to loathe. Keeps getting typecast into role, into roles that... Uh, really don't do her any favors. I feel bad for her. Well, yeah. yeah. Well, it seems like we probably run oh, yes. the plot into the ground. So uh, we're almost out of time here, but I guess we should take a little bit to mention what is kind of inevitable, the comparison between this show and its predecessor, the you know rather good mm-hmm. Last Exile. And I'm glad that they decided to sort of strike out on their own that um, you know they weren't just relying on the casting characters from the first season. Uh but the problem is they don't break from those characters entirely because Dio and Alvis and a bunch of other minor cameo characters are around. Having those characters around just reminds you of how good the original show was. But then we're stuck with with following Fam and Milia and all these other people that, as we said, names are barely are barely registering and they're just uh, just not good or interesting people to watch. Yeah, and then there's uh, like another thing. You know, in the first show, there was a there was a battle between two mm. guild members, and it was this sort of like an elegant dance, almost like this battle, because they're at such a high level of superhuman ability, and the the scene was really oh, yeah. well done. I mean, you could tell that it was on a whole different level from you know normal people fighting each other. The battles in this show, by contrast, like, all the guild guys now have lightsabers, basically. Like, one guy actually has the double-sided Darth Maul mm-hmm. lightsaber as a weapon. And it even turns on the same way. Like, <laughs> way to rip that off, guys. And they're just these rapid-fire, like, you know, people hitting each other with swords, except now they're laser sword stuff. I don't know. It, it, you, the first thing you think of is is this other battle from the first show, and you're like, Where what did this happened, drop guys? off? And this ex- this extends to the uh, to the actual battles between airships. Now, to its uh, thinking of the original one, like the opening battle of, or not opening, but the early battles in uh, the original Last Exile are some of my favorite like large scale military conflicts of the show. It's very obvious how everything's fought. There's a lot of really good like there's things that are formalized. Then people break the rules, and that throws everything into chaos. And it just feels real it feels solid it feels like people actually thought out what is this based on the rules we have made up for this world how would things go and how can we mess with them but in this one like fam has a few pretty decent battles in the in the early part of the show there's a ambush that attacks the where the uh, addis federation attacks the sky pirates to unleash their new like anti-vanship weapon which is pretty neat yeah, and they gotta, like, find a clever way out of it, and yeah. they do. And, and the assault on Glacius is, you know, appropriately brutal, because they're fighting against, you know, again, they're fighting against fighters, which is not their usual M.O., 
and they're also fighting against ground defenses. So there's a bit more interesting, you know, movement and how they're positioning their fleets and whatnot going on. But then after that point, all of the battles just sort of devolve into big fleets of often completely identical ships uh, shooting at each other to very little effect other than just characters yelling at each yeah, other. Yeah, like, like the battles look... The battles look visually exciting. There's a lot of bullets and stuff going on and cool-looking ships, because once they have the CG model, they can just make a bunch of them. But there's never any sense of who's winning or losing or where anything is, you know, where there really is relative to each other. They're just, like, a bunch of stuff firing. Probably not even, even... Even early on, this was kind of a problem. Like, the assault on Turan, there's all these Addis Van... You know, Addis warships in the sky, and they destroy the entire Turanian fleet. But at some point, uh, Fam and her van ship tries to go out there and confront Luskinia in person. And as she's flying out there, all the Addis ships are just firing all of their guns in, in every random single directions. direction. There, there, like, there aren't any targets left. There are no... There's no enemy ships anywhere. They're just firing. And it, it looks cool, but when you stop to think about it, you're like, you know, you just you just did that because it... to give some visual flair to the thing. It doesn't make any sense. You just, you just did it because you thought it would look good. And that's kind of the problem with all yeah. of the later battles of the show. You just did it because you thought it would look good, not because yeah, it... And that really good. kind of feel, feels like it sort of... It explains the show in general. To me, it honestly feels like poorly written fan fiction. Like, there was a neat idea of mm. this is what happens following the events of Last Exile. The ending of the first season is really confusing. Look it up if you need to. But all of these people have come yeah. back and are now, you know, they've accomplished the big goal of the first season. So let's start with a blank slate in a, in the same world with new characters that aren't necessarily just retreads of the old one and that's cool but then they just none of the characters motivations make a lot of sense none of the characters are particularly engaging and so they keep trotting out cameos by from ideas and ships and characters from the first season to try and keep our attention, especially at the very end when a whole bunch of characters from the first season show up apropos of nothing and as if to just, you know, dangle something shiny in front of us and say, hey, hey, look at this. Hey, look at this. We didn't run out of money. We swear. Yeah, probably the best example of this was uh, episode, I want to say 17, which was a, a recap episode. And the recap episode wasn't of Last Exile, Fam the Silver Wing. It was actually of the first season, sort of to remind you what happened yeah. more than halfway through the show. And... I mean, they really went all out with this one. They used the original theme song from the first show. They used the same splash, uh, they call it, uh, yeah. like, eye catches as the first show. And uh, Anna was really neat. And I could, you could almost picture, like, the, the people making, you know, the new show kind of sitting there and being like, ah, geez, Joe, where'd we go uh, wrong on this one? Like, remember what this used to look was, like? It was so cool. Where'd like, they wrong? show the scene, for example, uh, spoilers for the first one, if you couldn't already tell, Dio dies in the first season. He 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 is he is wrought with grief over the death of one, of his best friend, the only person who has cared about him. He falls out of an airship into a screaming vortex of wind and snow and death that has killed every single person that has ever been exposed to it personally for more than a few minutes. And yet in the new series, he's completely fine as if nothing has happened. He just sort of says like oh. not only that, he's the one oh, telling yeah. the recap so he's telling you about how he fell off the ship into the thing, and he goes, and then I fell into the thing. And now we're here better. in the present day. Like, well, you can't just do that. Everyone was waiting for that. Like, like everyone kind of wanted to know, if you're going to back in the, in the new show, how did you survive? And it would have been the only new piece of information in the whole recap episode. They just yep. kind of skipped over it. Yeah, they don't like know I how said, it worked. Like, like fan fiction that never really got a grasp of what made the original good, which is really bizarre because... So much of the staff is from the original. I'm pretty sure the, the same director did it. Uh, character designer is back, so again, that's why the costumes and whatnot still look good. And the writing isn't always terrible, but it just sort of, the bottom falls out of the whole thing near the end. And the weirdness of having a, what is it, a 23-episode series, two of wit, two of the episodes being full-length recap episodes, just feels like... Either the money or the patience of the producers, someone's someone's resources ran out somewhere in here. We don't know the details. Everything's been kind of tight-lipped. If anyone knows about it, please let us know. Yeah, leave us a comment on exactly. here. I'd love to know what happened. Anyway, I think that about wraps up 
our take on Fam the Silver Wing. It had potential. It had a wonderful pedigree. It had a lot of good people involved. And it looks nice. Like, visually looks nice. They keep, well, with a few notable exceptions, they keep pretty good quality yeah. throughout in terms of There's animation. There's so much going for it, and it squanders it before the end. And it just, it's not a show that I can say, I don't, I don't hate it in the same way that I hate a bad show. Like, a bad show is kind of a joy to be angry at. This is like, these things are so bad, this thing is a perfect example of what not to do. That's what we love, that's what we love about doing our uh, bad anime panels. That's, that's one of the things we enjoy. Hmm. This, this was just disappointing. Disappointing is yeah. a good word for it. Oh, that well, seems we should fair. probably end there. So, in, in, in inclusion, we don't recommend just you watch re- Fan the Silver Wing. Just, just rewatch you'll, the you'll, first you'll season if you really want to, because if you haven't seen it all, if you haven't seen it already, well, why are you watching this and listening to us spoil it? But uh, even if you have or if you haven't, give that a shot. You'll be much better off than wasting your time with this one. Well, thanks everyone, and uh, we will yep. be back again with future podcasts at a later date. Thanks for listening. 